to Latino Vote with Mike Madrid and Chuck Rocha. Mike Madrid and Chuck were with us uh, last time talking about uh, some of the trends that we're seeing in, in the national media regarding Latinos and their votes and some of the issues that have started to come up. Today, we want to talk a little bit more about some of the CD, uh, that's congressional races around the country. Um, we want to talk a little bit about Texas and what's happening down there and some unique stories that we're seeing uh, around the country from candidates that are doing uh, things to get attention. I know, uh, let me just start with that, Chuck. I think most of us that watch this show um, and follow you and others have seen the ad where you've got two ads out with a candidate that has uh, decided that smoking a little reefer on camera was a good idea. Um, and then I think he burned a flag this week. What What's the thinking behind something like that? You're talking about, and thank you, Jason. It's good to see you, Mike, again. Uh, and I'm excited to be back for uh, episode two here. Uh, we're talking about a Louisiana Senate candidate named Gary Chambers, who I'm honored to work for and have been there working for him since uh, we've been putting together the campaign to announce that. It, and it's a good lesson for all of you out there. Gary Chambers is very opinionated. Gary Chambers has been an activist and a community activist his whole life. I would remind a lot of you, he went viral two years ago because he was in a Baton Rouge city council race and started calling calling out a woman named Connie who was at the podium shopping on her laptop while they were, he was trying to debate getting rid of the Robert E. Lee high school. So he kept hollering at Connie and it just went viral and he ended up running for Congress in a special election and just barely missing the runoff and now running for the U S Senate. And, you know, Gary, it's his own vision. I wish I could take credit for, you know, the amazing thing that him and Irwin, Irwin is his local videographer who literally Jason, this is a way new campaigns should be run, follows him around every day, rides in the truck with him every day, videotaping him, talking to camera, talking to activists, and kind of uh, uh, narrating his life to voters. And they put it out on social media. This is a new way of what me and Mike are talking about. Folks would have never done in traditional campaigns. They would have never set a large black man in a chair on the side of a highway, smoking a blunt to bring attention to an issue of a black man gets incarcerated every 37 seconds for marijuana use in America while rich white people in many states are becoming bazillionaires off of the same product. It's just drawing a contrast to get attention. And me and Mike throughout this podcast, will talk about how being outside of the box of what's normal today in politics is what we need more of if we're going to reach these young Latino voters who demand a little more shock and awe to get their attention because it's much easier when I was a kid and there was only three TV stations on to get my attention when there was no internet than my son who's 30 years old, lives in Pittsburgh, who has twin five-year-old grandboys who's trying to figure out how to make his way through life every day and take care of those boys. Like, it's just a different time. Mike, your Twitter feed is one of my favorite reads. Uh, last night, you put something out that I thought was unique. I should know more about it since this candidate is from Texas and running for the railroad commissioner. Tell us a little about that and how that ties into what uh, Chuck's talking about on uh, getting attention. Well, look, Chuck is exactly right. I mean, it's increasingly difficult to break through, to have your campaign message break through. It's, it's really, really difficult. Um, and it's, it's even, it's getting really difficult to target voters because there's so many platforms, so many avenues, so many ways to reach voters and to uh, allocate your resource, your, your budget and your spend in the right way to get that connection with the voter um, is really testing us as a profession and as political consultants in the same way that it is 
for consumer marketers, except they tend to have much bigger budgets than we do with much longer timeframes to actually show progress in their work, right? We've got We've got till 8 p.m. on the first Tuesday in November, and you're either going to win or you're going to lose based off of the decision that you made. There's no next quarter. There's no tomorrow. There's no, you know, let's let's keep building, uh, you know, a consumer base for next year. So what happened was, and, and I, I think it's kind of unfortunate, uh, th- th- this woman, Su- Susan Strong, Strong, Stroke, Stuger, I, Stuger, I believe, S-T-O-O-G-E-R. Yeah, uh, she's running for, for railroad commissioner in Texas, thought it would be a good idea to put on a bikini bottom, no tops, little pasties and get on an oil derrick and ride an oil derrick and put that up on TikTok. Um, that's not cutting through in a way that, in a way that Chuck was doing with his candidate in Louisiana, which I think were very good spots, by the way, Chuck. The, 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 the the, the, the problem there is the message you're sending is that you are not a credible, viable person. You're not a serious person. And I think the difference between the visuals and the message that were used uh, in Louisiana was that there are issues that are not being addressed and having it coming from a messenger who is a person of color was extremely impactful. Burning a Confederate flag and what that means, the symbology there. Uh, smoking marijuana, right? Something that is is very out front, especially for a Southern state, um, is going to get attention in a way that is bringing those issues to the forefront. Bringing oil and gas issues to the forefront by by going semi-nude uh, is probably not the best way to, to, to convey your message. But uh, here we are. I think we're going to see because of the ubiquitousness of the internet, the way we communicate, the performative nature of politics, right? The, the Marjorie Taylor Greens and, and Matt Gates of the world who aren't really serious candidates or serious uh, people trying to make policy, that they're simply there for the theater of it all. And, and the one-uppedness, right, is who can get even more extreme, more crazy to get more eyeballs and more attention is unfortunately, I think, going to be a defining feature of our, of our business uh, for the foreseeable future. So in the same vein, I'd like to ask both of you as consultants, you having your consultant hat on, do Latinos digest uh, information? Do they digest campaign material? Do they digest uh, the kinds of um, television and radio uh, that you guys put together the same way as the electorate at large? Or are there unique characteristics to uh, that constituency that makes reaching Latinos different. I know there's a, several candidates for Congress down in the Rio Grande Valley. Their campaign commercials look a, a lot like what you would see from any campaign commercial. They're not, they're not appealing to Latinos. Is that, is that a mistake, number one? And, and if so, how do you, again, how do you do it? What do you do differently? Well, I would say that, that they act a lot like white folks as far as uh, folks, it's hard to break through when they're seeing stuff. But there's also a big difference here and a big difference in the way that, A, if you listen to the first podcast, I talked about the age of Latinos. So we are younger. So if you're just running that Univision ad the last two weeks of the early vote, you're not reaching all of the voters under the age of 40. We're multilingual and multilingual households where our abuelo only speaks Spanish and the parents are bilingual and the grand and the grandkids are probably English only. 
So how do you send a mail piece? Do you send it in English? Do you send it in Spanish? That's why you should hire Mike Madrid or Chuck Roach on your campaign. Five, 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 never mind. So if you go back <laughs> and you look at that, this is where you need cultural competency. Because you also know, you know, Eki's had a great study out uh, a couple of weeks ago that showed Latinos mainly get their information from YouTube. So they're online on their phones watching YouTube as news because you can get local news on YouTube as well and getting information from YouTube. So the way that me and Mike talk about consultants and talk about running campaigns differently is even today in February of 2022, campaigns are still just buying a whole bunch of network TV commercials thinking they're going to reach the voters that they want to get to. And they check a Latino box to run a Univision and Telemundo ad in the last three weeks in Spanish and say, we did the Spanish ad. And what's even worse, and I'll shut up because Mike can talk about this as long as I can, is they probably took that English ad and just Google translated it into Spanish, thinking that the same message at work for the white folks is going to work for La Raza. There's still a lot of, of that going on. I mean, people would be shocked at how much what Chuck just said is actually what does happen is you've got a consultants who have no understanding of the community who are like, oh, yeah, we need to do some Latino stuff, too. So let's just Google translate it. I think, you know, Johnny, the interns, you know, cousin is, uh, you know, speak Spanish. Let, let's bring them to do the voiceover. And then let's just throw up a show by, as we call it. It's not really designed to actually move the needle. It's designed to say that we did it and check the box, send out a press release, try to get the local news to kind of cover the fact that they're doing this. Um, that, that even, even here in California, a lot of, lot of Republican consultants, uh, that, is, that is what they do. Um, and, and the idea is to not just necessarily win the, the, any Latino votes because that kind of garbage doesn't get you anything. It's to kind of portray you as a different kind of Republican. We're, we're the Republicans that get you know, the uh, higher share of the Hispanic or Latino vote. And of course, that's rarely, rarely successful. What I will say, though, is this. I do believe that it is far more important to be multicultural than it is even to be multilingual. They're both very important, but having a cultural competency is increasingly important as the majority of Latino Hispanic voters are English dominant if they're bilingual or English exclusive, as Chuck was saying, by the second and third generation. Let's explain that, though, for our non-Latino watchers or listeners, right? What does it mean to have cultural relevancy with this constituency? Um, you know, I, I, Chuck made the joke about, you know, we just Google translate the, the ad and that's it. Uh, it's more than that. How, how is it different? Tell me how it's different. Well, I mean, I can give you a million different examples and we'll talk about some of those as can Chuck, because that's kind of what we do, the practice of it. But let's say you've got, you know, um, let's say your, your poll comes back and it shows that crime is the top issue. The way the crime issue is going to be com conveyed and creative for a, a white progressive or a white conservative is going to be very different. Why would we think it's not going to be different for a Latino Hispanic progressive or a Latino Hispanic conservative uh, that is different than, than whites? Our community is affected by policing in a way that is uh, very far different than, than whites, uh, the white community is. So, so what makes us think that you can just translate um, a, a, a commercial or a piece of mail into Spanish and think that that's going to somehow work 
um, just because the, the, the top line of your poll tells you that there's a, a you know, agreement that, that crime is an issue. The, the, that one question doesn't give you the behind the scenes look as to why crime is an issue and how, how those communities are affected distinctly. And that type of messaging is really what needs to be brought in. So, so, so there's that, there's the policy, but where you can really make a connection with a candidate, I think is when you can start bringing in things that are unique to the um, Hispanic Latino experience. We used to do a lot of, you know, uh, introductory things, especially for non-Hispanic candidates to the Latino community. We would do stuff uh, like, you know, uh, having the candidate walking around at, at a backyard barbecue party where, where the kids are playing Loteria, right? Which is a traditional Mexican American game. Um, which you, you, how would you know that unless you did that as a kid, right? How would you know that connection is there? Um, it, it's different than just kind of showing up and shaking hands at somebody's house, which you might do in a non-Hispanic ad. So those kind of nods to the culture, the, those kind of nods to, um, to, 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 to showing that the candidate has a seamless relationship with the community is what opens the doors to allowing the voter to listen to the message. Um, as much as that 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 nod to to to, to Spanish, and the, yeah. I think there's a lot. There there are candidates now who who will be like, oh yeah, I speak Spanish. I took five years of Spanish in college, and their Spanish is so halting that I'm just like, no, we're not doing that. I mean, you may think you speak Spanish, and I and and there was a time and a place where we would say, okay, at least you're trying, and people would see that. I don't even do that anymore. Mm. It's like now now the trying isn't isn't. Um, viewed as oh this person's trying to engage my community it's more like who the hell do you think you're fooling and so unless it's passable i'm not i'm not going to put my candidate in that in that environment there, there, there can be difference of opinions I, mean, I don't know if chuck disagrees or not and i think they're both equally valid it just depends on the consultant style and how you want to approach the campaign i want to ask chuck the inverse of this question and that is what do consultants get wrong when they're trying uh, to reach Latinos. And I think uh, Mike mentioned an instance, right? Trying to speak the language. If you don't speak the language, it's probably not going to be helpful. But uh, you've seen a lot of these campaigns, uh, Chuck, in Texas. Um, and boy, uh, they don't get it. They don't get it right. Uh, what are some of the big pitfalls that non-Latinos make when they're trying to make ads um, for Latinos? I think the word Mike hit it on the head about the culture piece, right? But I think that a lot of times understanding the relevance that's just different than a white audience that they're not used to. There's, I'm not saying that white people don't love their mama. I'm just saying that brown people love their mama and their grandmama <laughs> and that these women, these women are the centerpieces of the Latino family. And it's wrapped around that grandmother who at every breath, somebody is at her house. She's always cooking something. She's always got grandkids at her house. And she's just always the centerpiece of getting SHIT done. And so when you go in and you, you, you show up in the right way to highlight that grandmother or the love of that family, like those are little things that white consultants will walk past to just make another ad that you alluded to that you would see in Texas 15. Right. So 
uh, the race that you were talking about earlier is the only marginal seat in Texas. And it made me think as Mike was talking, uh, I'm working for a guy down there named John Villarreal Rigney. Now, when I met John Rigney, first thing I told him is I was like, you better have a Latino middle name because you ain't never going to get elected in a 76% Latino district named Rigney. And he was like, my mama came here from Mexico. She was undocumented. I'm like, you keep talking because you got to be the most Mexican Mexican if your name's going to be Rigney. Now, luckily, his mother's name was Villarreal. It was on his birth certificate, his name on the candidate. So this is this is Chuck Roach of cultural competency is he was going to run as John Rigney. But I'm like, no, 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 no. When we file to run, we're filing as John Villarreal Rigney, because that is your God given name. And your mama came here from Mexico as an undocumented immigrant. Now, this would go on. And John speaks beautiful Spanish. Like Mike was saying, he don't try to speak it. He was raised in a household speaking Spanish. His Spanish is eloquent and better than all the other candidates, even though his last name is Rigney. So to your point, and, and my, you and Michael appreciate this, is that literally three weeks ago, we hired a local band in a studio and made a corrido. And there's this beautiful Mexican song where these deep baritone voice Mexicans are going, John Villarreal. And they're just this romantic and it's beautiful. This morning on the local Tex-Mex radio station, they have John on and played the corrido twice. What's before his interview and after this thing's three and a half minutes long. And we own the radio station for like 15 minutes this morning. All of those things are parts of if you have a Mexican consultant to Mike's point about the parties, then you will walk into that. None of the other candidates, all of which I would say are Mexican have done any of the above and they all have white consultants. No, no disrespect. There are a lot of good Democrats there and they may be the nominee for all I know, but it's just the difference in the little things that you do in a campaign that somebody in the community is like, Oh shit. Look at there. Like that. They like, I like that guy, a corrido. Are you shitting me? Like that's kind of reaction you want. Uh, CD15 is a race uh, that I do want to talk about. And, and on this show, as you know, we're going to be talking about some of these congressional races uh, just uh, regularly. This is one I think that's really interesting because you've got Monica, I think it's De La Cruz, uh, who came in pretty close last time uh, to, to winning this race. This is a new seat, a newly drawn seat that's, uh, what's it, 50-50? I don't know the, the, the Orvis down there, but I know it's close. And, you know, the Republicans have gotten behind uh, Monica. And there's an article yesterday in the Texas Monthly that Jack Herrera uh, wrote that had a pretty good um, background on this race. What are your thoughts on that race, Mike, if you if you followed it? Let me give a high, high level observation. And Chuck Chuck started on this road and it's an extremely important point in understanding the mindset of Latino voters and engaging them. And I think this race could be um, a good example of that. There is not nearly enough talk or understanding about how, how much the culture and the mindset of Mexican-Americans specifically, which is by, by a wide number, the, the biggest group of, of Hispanic Latinos in the country, um, the appeal to the feminine and the matriarchal nature of our families is extraordinary, especially when it comes to po politics. We have never had a problem with viewing our women, our Latinas, as the political leaders in our communities and in our families. Whenever there are social issues that come up, if it's environmental degradation or if it's crime or if it's school reform, whatever it is, 99 times out of 100, 
these issues are led by our women from a community perspective and civic engagement. There have been numerous studies over the years that show that if you communicate to the female head of household in Hispanic houses, the likelihood of men being dragged to the polls by women goes up exponentially as a turnout measure. In California, which has one of the largest Latino Hispanic caucuses in the state legislature, there are more women elected to office than men, same as the school boards in California. Hispanic women are the political leaders in our communities, and there is something to be learned by our, our you know, white uh, brothers and sisters who um, are, are trying to get to equality and parity in politics by watching our family and our culture. It is not, we do not have this, this, this machismo notion, which I just, I just hate it. It, it always comes from, 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 from people who have lack any understanding saying that the community is macho or machismo. I mean, I, that's so subjective. First, we can kind of talk about that. But the truth is we have never, ever had an aversion to showing uh, support for the women as political and community leaders in our community. It's just not true. And so when you see a woman taking a leadership role as a candidate against a, a, a man, uh, I think there's a decided advantage for, for the woman running, um, all things being equal. Now, there's obviously partisan constraints, and, and then the policy is, issues matrix, the nature of the community, everything that defines a campaign. But there is something that needs to be explored, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this a lot more going forward. But the matriarchal nature, as, as Chuck said it very distinctly, there is a difference in the way that we view women as the head of household. Uh, as as the leader essentially of the family and leaders in the community that has defined the Hispanic Latino experience generally and the Mexican American experience specifically. How do you overcome that, Chuck, with your candidate? Well, the first thing you do is it's just a pure strategist is you say, how many women are running? Oh, there's two women run. Okay, well then that will we have a shot because if there's just one woman running, to Mike's point, it gives a whole other uh, uh, breakdown. And then are they funded? And in this particular race on the Democratic side, there are two qu highly qualified women and two highly qualified men running. And neither one of them, none of the four have any money to speak of. Uh, my guy put in the most money, but still relatively small amount. So these kind of races, to be honest, Mike, these are the ones I love the most because it takes the most of my brain power, right? Because mm -hmm. I have a straight up shot to win. Ain't nobody got $200,000. It's just mm -hmm. who can out trick the other one of where does that next $2,000 just siphon off enough votes to mess with people. And mm -hmm. so this one I have spent and lost more money on than I will on any race this year, but it's very like, it's like old school going back to the first races we ran when it was even and you didn't have super packs and it wasn't somebody dropping a million dollars on your head to move, you know, 10 points in three weeks. This is just like old school bare knuckles, hence the corrido, hence Via Real, hence like everybody's fighting for every little endorsement. We're texting like cartoons to people, like anything at all, which really as an old dude keeps me sharp and figuring mm -hmm. out how to win. And so that's what we've been doing to kind of break through. I tell you what's confusing to me, not confusing to me, but you, I think that's in, in compelling is that here we are in 2022 talking about a situation in the Rio Grande Valley region where a Republican has a chance. I mean, that's that's not uh, that's not typical. That hasn't happened before. Um, we talked in episode one about some of the shifts, some of the changes. What's happening down there? 
Mike, that you think is unique? Obviously, um, there are other areas in Texas and the major cities where Hispanics are continuing to be supportive of progressive candidates, but the Rio Grande Valley is unique. Um, and now we're seeing that. We, we saw Hidalgo County went Trump and Zapata County went Trump. They just elected a, um, a Villalobos uh, a mayor, a Republican down there. Um, what's going on uh, in the Valley? Well, it's not just in the Valley, but it's most acute in the Valley. So it's important to, to understand that, right? Um, look, in, 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 in the last episode, Chuck started on this. We just ran out of time. So I'm glad we're kind of revisiting a little bit. I view the Latino vote as the new, this generation's Reagan Democrat. The Reagan Democrats were working folks, worked with their hands. They were in the construction industry. They were in the energy industry. They were in manufacturing. These are people that did not go to college, but are looking to, you know, play by the rules, uh, pay the mortgage, you know, make sure that their kids can hopefully get to college and, you know, are raised right and play a little football or baseball on the weekends and, and have the, the, those, those working class values. Um, not necessarily religious, and we should spend some time, you know, on a future episode talking about the cultural components of, of religion and how they are very distinct with Latino voters because they are very distinct. They're not like white voters at all, even the evangelical strains and, and the Catholic question. We should we should probably explore that a little bit. But the bottom line is this is essentially, if you look at it this way, this is a working class, blue collar, patriotic, uh, pay your bills, play by the rules kind of community that sees the excesses, especially the cultural excesses of the Democratic Party as anathema. And if not anti, um, if they don't view it as antagonistic, they're at best ambivalent, right? And that's where this whole Latin X discussion sort of creeped in, is it's not that Latinos hate or don't like the terminology of Latin X. They just don't get it. It's like that's that's not important. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Like, I gotta I gotta pay rent and find out how my kids are gonna get to soccer practice, and 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 you know take care of 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 you know family business. Like, those are the luxuries of 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 a culture that is distinct from blue collar workers. Now, the 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 most important divide in American politics is the education divide. The Democratic Party is rapidly, rapidly consolidating college-educated voters under its banner. The Republican Party is rapidly consolidating non-college-educated voters under its banner. This is no longer, the Democratic Party is no longer the party of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. It's no longer the working class party. It's, it's certainly not the white working class party. And it's becoming less and less the Hispanic, Latino, and even African-American working class party. And, and you can sit there and argue about the policy issues or not, or you can just stop and look at the reality of how voters in that demographic cohort are actually voting. And this reliance on issues that are, quote unquote, stereotypically Hispanic the undocumented, building a wall, kids in cages. Are those issues important? Yeah, they're, ish, they're important for humanity. But they're, you also got to pay the rent, <laughs> right? And if you view some of the orthodox and institutions of the Democratic Party as an enemy of the oil patch, 
of, of the energy trade that you're in that allows you to pay the mortgage that gives you a higher quality of living. And it's going to allow you to, to put a couple bucks aside to pay for two weeks vacation and maybe get your kid to college. That's not going to be viewed kindly. And that's why that surprises anybody uh, is kind of beyond me. Um, but, but that that's largely what is happening is, is these are working class rural communities who have a value set that reflects that regardless of whether you're white, Hispanic, black, or who, whatever you are, there's a certain cultural value set of rural America that is cross cultural, that is cross ethnic, that is cross racial. And it's crossed, you know, the distincting the distinctive line there is the education gap. And it is a long-term problem for the Democratic Party. So, so this is for Chuck. I mean, that's been the case for 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 hundred years down there, right? Um, what's changed, Chuck? Why why is it different down there today? And is Mike uh, correct in his assertion that because of these well, let's just call them working class values that now Republicans have a chance, whereas they might not have had a chance before. I mean, I don't I don't think that that's it's a part of the truth. And I'd push back on this whole narrative that the valley now is becoming Republican because of whatever this or that issue. The, the thing with the valley, in my humble opinion, is uh, Mike was right truly about it being a blue collar working class group of folks that is that's just embedded there and, and people always ask me chuck you know what are they they assume that i'm a good latino consultant because i'm brown and because my last name is rocha and my father's people not my father came from Guanajuato, mexico but i'm a damn good democratic consultant because i never went to college and i worked in a factory and i've got a criminal record and i've had a truck repoed and I've been to a payday lender and I had a baby when I was 19 and was a single father my entire life. I had to figure out how to make things work as a young man who had no college and was working in a factory. Well, guess what? That's a lot of those people might just described in the Rio Grande Valley, right? So I'm pretty good at understanding the way that they're thinking instead of another overeducated person whose intentions are well, who just has no ties to that community. So when I make an ad, I'm making an ad for my mama. I'm making an ad for my uncle Steve or for my uncle Carlos. Like it's, I'm tied to that. And that's because of my skin color. Me and Mike are good consultants. We just happen to be good consultants that are Latino because we are from that community. But to, to, to end the thought on the Rio Grande Valley, there's two points that I thought of. One was that Bernie Sanders won every single one of these counties in the Valley. So don't step to me and say they're becoming more Republican if they all voted for Bernie Sanders. And don't also tell me that that was a Democratic primary vote because girls and boys, 80% of every voter in the Valley is registered as a Democrat. We can talk later about why they voted for Donald Trump. But a lot of these voters voted for Bernie Sanders and then for Donald Trump. And what I would find in my post-election analysis is it was because of what Mike said of us versus them. When I ran the campaign for Bernie in Texas and did what Mike described in LA in the Valley, I talked about economic populism, raising the minimum wage, talking about debt forgiveness for college and talking about those people on Wall Street taking advantage of us people here doing all the work and paying all the bills. I never mentioned Cuba. I never mentioned Green for All. I never mentioned 
whatever the liberal thing might have been, I talked about the bedrock of economic populist that was Bernie Sanders' message that brown people liked. And the last point is, as of today, in McAllen, Texas. Now, this is when this airs, I will tell you there's been three days of early voting in Hildago County, and 7,800 Democrats have voted early, and only 2,400 Republicans have voted early. Now, does that mean that this wave is over? No, it just means that Democrats have voted earlier more than Republicans. And we all know now, thanks to Donald Trump, many Republicans will wait till election day, but it does give you a snapshot into the first three days of early voting and all of these Democrats coming home to vote in these primaries. Because as Mike will tell you, and Jason more so, that in the Valley forever, the only race was the Democratic primary and then nobody ever showed up in the general because it's 80% Democrat. That was gold, folks. Yeah, listen to that over and over and over again. Uh, th those two <laughs> points is that was just absolutely spot on. So you, we, I think we're in vehement agreement, right, uh, about some of the trends and some of the reasons underlying uh, where the voters might be uh, in the Rio Grande Valley. How does that play out in CD28 when you've got the Cuellar race and then you've got uh, Cisneros who seems to be a much more progressive style candidate, right? I think she had AOC down there last week and she's identifying as that sort of East Coast elite um, uh, progressive. Is that gonna sell down there? I don't know that candidate that well, I just know what I've read. Chuck, I'd love to get your thoughts on whether or not she's, she's identifying that way down there. And is that going to be a hindrance for her in that race. All I'll say about this race is that it's going to be a low voter turnout. And if I don't think I'm going to be wrong, it's not going to be anywhere compared to when she ran in 2020 and only lost by three points. Henry Cuellar has represented this area for over 20 years, and he just got his house raided by the FBI a, a few days ago and his campaign office. His campaign manager took down his Twitter account like it is as ugly as it can be. But it's also the Texas Valley and we're used to investigations and raids. Like it's not the end of the world like it would be in other places. And all I will say is this, is that this voter, low voter turnout gives an advantage to both Jessica and to Henry, all depending on which one of those want to capitalize. Henry's got $2 million. He's buying a ton of TV. He has no real campaign on the ground. And will $2 million overcome her $1 million and put him over on name ID alone with a low voter turnout? Mike Madrid would normally tell you that's enough to probably make sure he's going to be safe. But if she actually spends the money wisely, and I don't know how she's spending her money, outside groups that are spending money down there, mainly on field, if they can actually motivate five, six, 7,000 new people to show up in an off-year election, just the raw numbers, Mike Madrid would tell you that that has an impact on the race in a lower margin turnout. So it's anybody's race. It was definitely going to be Henry Cuellar until two weeks ago when the FBI rolled up in his driveway. But now that leveled the playing field, in my humble opinion, and either one of them can win. Mike, thoughts on the, uh, the candidates in that race, particularly whether or not identifying as a, or self-identifying as a progressive uh, is a hindrance to that campaign, given what we talked about already with the structural, uh, imp structural movement towards more blue collar style worker or candidates? Well, look, I think this race is gonna test a couple of things. It's gonna test that, right? That message strategy, but in a low turnout race, to Chuck's point, it's where you need tacticians more than more than a grand strategist. 
you need nuts and bolts grinding people and getting them to the poles. And if you've got an, a significant field operation, you have a distinct advantage. And that's where a candidate like, like Henry, uh, who's run into some <laughs> serious trouble, is probably going to have a tough time, even though he's been there for so long and the name is so resonant uh, in the district, having volunteers show up to kind of to, to kind of to, to, to show up in the middle of trying to have to explain an FBI investigation when they're probably not sure uh, themselves who the candidate that they're supporting um, what, what the whole story is like that's not a play that's not a that's not a way to build an army of people willing to spend a Saturday and Sunday walking for you um that's just not the way that, that it's going to play out so so to me that there are, there are other dynamics here this is and again there's a male female uh consideration here too which i think could be a decided advantage for a woman running against a man who's under investigation it's just a, a new type of candidate with a different type of a sort of stereotypical trust um voters tend to trust uh women with having more integrity than men do generally um especially I would say Latino voters because of some of those cultural nuances we discussed. I think she has an advantage here, but I think it, it really does come down to math as, as Chuck said. And, and as, as much as we want to impart a lot of the strategic questions in a low voter turnout scenario, you better have an army that can grind and turn voters out because if you can move the needle one or two points, that could absolutely be the difference here. Well, the top of the ticket in Texas Beto and Abbott drive any of this. I mean, I, that race, I mean, that, that's a race that I think people around the country are looking at. My organization polled it uh, a few months ago and found that it was within striking distance for, for Beto. Since then, I think other polls have dispelled uh, that he's as strong as, as we had found him to be a few months back. Um, question one, you know, is that a competitive race? Uh, this is for Chuck. And then two, will it drive turnout and impact some of these CD races that we're seeing uh, around the state? Look, I think it is going to be a competitive race just based off of raw money. Like, I think it's a bad year for Democrats. I think that we can talk in other episodes about why I think it's going to be a bad year and what we could do to try to correct some of it. But Beto already has name ID, so we don't have to pay for that. They know him. He's got $7 million. He may end up getting $20 million by the time this is over or even more. And when you, Texas has never really seen that influx of money since the last time he ran. And the last time he ran, again, this ain't what Chuck Rocha thinks. This is Mike Madrid math. We should make that a part of these episodes and just talk about Mike Madrid math. If you just look at the math of how he helped the bottom of the ticket by just running a field operation, it didn't do him enough justice at the top of the ticket to get him elected. But at the lower levels in communities that were a little more democratic, it had a huge impact. And it was the last time Democrats at the state house picked up seats was when he ran because that money lifted all boats because one thing we know in Texas is the Nueces County Democratic Party ain't got no money for GOTV. That this other little town in Smith County, uh, East Texas, where I'm from, they ain't got no, got no money for GOTV. So this is where that money and his infrastructure and his distributed organizing program is a monster and helps a lot of people in the state. So it, it sounds like you're saying it's a competitive race, but more importantly, him being on the ticket probably will have an impact on turnout, uh, particularly in these CD races and even some of the state house races. 
Yeah, but it's just based off of folks having the money. The state party in that state does not have money to run their own early vote or GOTV operation. So if he can fund that in places, it will have an impact. Is it big enough to flip things? That's yet to be determined. Mm. Uh, Mike, I want to close uh, this show today talking about the AG's race. Um, in Texas. The, the attorney general in Texas, Ken Paxton, is under indictment. He's had a number of different foibles uh, that have cost him some support, but in, in, in by and large, he seems to be unscathed uh, going into this uh, cycle. That being said, there are two very interesting Republicans that are running against him in the primary. One is a former Supreme, Texas Supreme Court Justice Eva Guzman, a brilliant lawyer and very capable a candidate uh, running, and then also the scion of of, of Texas and with one of your one of your former uh, clients, uh, George P. Bush, is running. Um, you know, we're reading a lot now about this race. It looks like it might end up with a runoff between Paxton and and somebody. Right now, I think George P.'s got the bead on second place. But um, how does this race? Uh, one play out right with Gomert getting in can Paxton win outright but really what I'm interested in hearing from you Mike is what the impact of having two high profile Latinos in an AG's Republican race uh, running against the incumbent how that uh, is perceived around the country around people like you or students of this what does that what does that mean for Texas politics well, look, I love this race for all those reasons. I think it's fascinating. I mean, Paxton is an incredibly flawed incumbent, but he is still an incumbent. And at a time of intense partisanship and, and, and party loyalty, um, it takes a lot. It takes a lot to unseat an incumbent in a primary, um, especially when parties have become the Republican Party, most specifically, more more like a mob and and you know <laughs> party loyalty is the is the is the one inviolate thing that you cannot uh you know um cross cross uh you know with with other partisans on you you, you just can't you're, you're seeing that incidentally in the georgia race with purdue and Kemp. the trump back candidate is not catching the fire the way uh they were hoping to purdue is not doing nearly as well against the incumbent georgia uh, uh governor uh incumbent camp um and, and that's just really just a sign of how difficult it is to unseat somebody. Could there have been a, a, an advantage of having uh, two Latino candidates consolidating this, the, the, the Hispanic Republican vote in that primary to be a catalyst? Uh, potentially. Uh, Republican Latinos are a little bit different animal than Democrat Latinos. We're a little bit less ethnically, racially driven, a little bit less tribal that way. Um, in fact, that's why a lot of, a lot of, a lot of Hispanics become Republican is the kind of rejection of that type of identity. Um, so to have two running against an incumbent, um, and then you've got to throw in the fact that, you know, the, the Bush family name, even in Texas, is not anything like it was 20 years ago. I mean, it's nothing like it was. Um, I saw some focus group results, actually, uh, not too long ago, showing that there's just, with Republicans, the, the Bushes are just not what they, what they used to be. Um, so, so what does all that mean? Uh, look, I'm still a big believer that, that the power of incumbency, incumbency, even with a very flawed candidate, um, is probably going to be enough to carry the day, the day, especially when you have two somewhat similar candidates 
um, competing for a very, very narrow lane within the Republican Party. Um, incidentally, the Republicans don't have a great, you know, th- these are not these are not these are not candidates that people in Texas really love statewide. Right. The, the Abbott's, the Cruises, the 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 the, the Paxson's. Um, but it's still again, getting back to math, Texas is still a red state. You know, I came under a lot of criticism, too, because at the Lincoln Project, we moved money late into Texas. It wasn't necessarily because we thought that we could win it. We just thought, well, too, we were trying to drive and force the Trump campaign to spend in Texas. And to the the symbolism of moving an an offensive wave late in the campaign was something that we thought that the Biden campaign would would need that narrative, that, that big push. And uh, and third, which was never really an obligation. But if you can cut the head off of the snake and have Democrats win Texas, uh, we would be in a very different place in American politics if we were able to. And we decided to, to roll the dice and make that gamble. But but Texas, remember, the, the, the mistake I think that Democrats have made in Texas is the belief that the increasing Latino vote was what's going to turn Texas blue. That has never been the case. What will ultimately turn Texas blue is the number of white college-educated progressives that the state is increasing with the new economy worker in its urban core. That's what has, has pushed this shift away from a deep red color 20 years ago to an increasingly competitive state. That, ironically, what may actually keep Texas red is the shrinking margin that is happening with Hispanic voters. They're not getting the 25, Republicans are, are surpassing that 25% number considerably now in Texas. And, and that makes it even harder for Democrats to be competitive because that what should be a base vote is clearly not demonstrating that that's, that's gonna be sticky enough to serve as a way to make the state blue. So uh, I, I don't think Texas is as competitive as a lot of people think that it is. I've, I've believed that for years. The one, uh, the one time that I have played differently was in 20, um, but that was for very different considerations is we knew the Biden campaign was competitive in enough states to lock up 270, and we wanted to, to make a symbolic move, and that's why we spent a few million bucks trying to, trying to roll the dice in, in, uh, in Texas. Boy, fascinating stuff, guys. I can't thank you enough again for uh, your insight. This is um, just uh, always a uh, fun for me to hear and uh, you guys are just so knowledgeable about all this that it's very uh, interesting to to guys like me so thank you for being with us today we're going to be on episode three shortly and we'll talk to you then we're going to do some quick hits um, in the next episode but thank you for joining us on latino vote with the ever brilliant mike madrid and the great chuck rocha signing off <laughs>